We're called to something different. We're called to entrust ourselves to Jesus, even in the midst of adversity. And what I believe we will find is that much like a tree that experiences the resistance of wind, our roots will only go down deeper and we will only be able to take on more, not in our strength, but in his. Uh, well, I'm going to invite Joyce to come up and read for us this morning. Um, as, you, as she's coming up, you, you can go ahead and stand uh, and turn to Acts uh, chapter 23. Uh, we'll be in verse 12. Uh, so you can turn there as she makes her way up. I just wanted to say, um, I left my glasses at home, so I had to borrow somebody. So hopefully I can see. <laughs> but I, I just felt like I wanted to go back to Verse 11, because I, I just feel like somebody needs to hear this this morning when the Lord spoke to Paul and he said, take courage. I just felt like I wanted to go back to that before I started re- reading in verse 12. So if anybody needs that courage this morning, I think that's a word for you. So starting with verse 12, it's a plot to kill Paul. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, Take notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he goes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of of their ambush. So he went and entered the barrack and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one, that you have that you have informed me of these things you may be seated i i heard of a, an experiment that was done in the late 80s and i actually remember uh, in in elementary school reading a little newspaper article about this where scientists were were seeking to create a perfect environment they were trying to get all the elements there, and how they did this was through uh, producing these biodomes. And they purified the air, they, they purified the water, 
And while much was learned in this process, uh, one of the surprising discoveries came in the growth of the trees. See, the scientists were puzzled that the trees would grow to a certain height and then they would just fall over. And the reason for this was that the roots of the trees had not gone down deep enough. And the reason for this was, was wind, or really the lack of it. That there was no resistance being pushed against the trees. That resistance is a part of where the tree builds its strength so that the roots can go down deep. Resistance and opposition, discomfort, they create a strength. Now, for us, this seems obvious when we think of something like exercise, right? Like you don't just lift a pencil hoping that suddenly your biceps will get huge. No, you need, you need some, some weight. You need some resistance to grow some strength. But we, we don't like opposition. Right? When it comes to life, comfort is king. When it comes to our culture, we do everything to ease our way of pretty much anything. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to suffer. No one seeks that out. But what we see throughout the book of Acts is that strength comes through suffering, like a muscle that is being trained. There's a, a, a letter that Paul writes to Timothy, and he's writing from Rome years after the events that were just read to us. And he's waiting for his execution. And while he's waiting for his execution, he sends some letters to his protege, Timothy. And he writes to Timothy, encouraging him, exhorting him. But most importantly, he's pointing him to the hope that is found in all seasons of life. And as I was reading this week in, in our reading plan, we were walking through 2 Timothy, and there was a passage that, that struck me in light of where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. And so uh, I'm going to turn there. It'll be on the screen. You can keep your fingers still in Acts 23 because we are going to get there. But beginning in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Right? I mean, we could stop here. There's a, there's a million sermons we could talk about just this moment. That we do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and of self-control that God is moving in and through us. But continuing on, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. I mean, this is just the gospel oozing out here. It's not by works, no, but it's God's grace towards us, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages, and which now has been manifested, it has now been seen through the appearing of our Christ Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul's not surprised by the afflictions that he has by proclaiming the gospel because it runs in such contrary nature, such opposition to the, the way of the world around him. And what's his response to that? You should share in my suffering, Timothy. Share in my suffering. Suffer as I do. And, and I'm not ashamed. Continuing on. For I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
And it's that last line that just stands out so clearly to me. I am not ashamed for I know who I am believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What has been entrusted to Paul? It's the good news of the gospel that he is going to proclaim to everyone he gets a chance to. He's going to proclaim the goodness that, that all of us who have called upon the name of Jesus have been entrusted with that good news. But what's Paul saying here too? I'm not ashamed for I know who I'm believing. I'm convinced that he's able to guard me until that day. Until that day he comes back, he has me. What Paul is saying in this moment is that he has entrusted his life to Jesus. Convinced that no matter what he suffered, what he faced, he was always safest in the hands of God. No matter if that was in a prison cell, in an angry mob, rejected by friends, or simply suffering through adversity. Now, I know this theme has been one that we've looked at over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. But what I see in this passage is a further development of Paul's understanding, his life application of this truth of entrusting himself to Jesus. This is a case study and how Paul developed his faith, how Paul developed his resistance to the wind so that he could stand firmly because his roots went down deep. See, so often when we read of Paul or when we read of anyone in Scripture, we see them as fully formed at the end of their life. And we forget that everybody was on a journey, that Paul was learning this. Jesus said, I'm calling you and you're going to suffer for my sake, Paul. There was no surprise there, but, but Paul, he, he, he experienced that over and over again until like a muscle it developed that no matter what was happening around him, he could entrust himself to Jesus. And that's why years after all this is taking place, he's writing to Timothy, his disciple, saying, trust me, I've seen a lot of things. I've walked through this over and over again, and through it all, God has proven himself faithful. And even when I could not see the good, he is bringing about a good that I can't even understand at times. But he is there with me. See, last week we saw, as, as Joyce reminded us, as Paul was sitting there, Jesus came and stood by his side and said, take courage. Now what we see in the moments that follow after that is that Paul is now going to have to step into those words, trust those words. Take those words to heart, even with his life on the line. It's the same way that we have to practice entrusting ourselves to Jesus, even when life doesn't make sense, even when we are in the midst of pain that we cannot see through the other side of. Because even in the midst of adversity, when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we will discover that our roots will deepen. And we'll find a strength that we didn't even know we had because he is working in and through us. So as we jump into this passage this morning, I just want to start by praying over us. Uh, and just praying for us that God would speak to us this morning. Father, as we come to your word and we are reminded of your presence with us. That we're reminded of your, your provision and the way that you uh, pioneered a path for us to follow, to embrace, to entrust ourselves to. God, I know that, that there are many in this room that are experiencing pain in some way, discomfort in some way, frustration in some way. 
And in those moments, we, we don't always, always think clearly or we don't always see your purpose. And there's this frustration that can brew and we can become paralyzed in that moment. And God, I pray that you would take our roots, that we would sink them down deep into you. For you are the true vine. You are our source of strength and life. Would we cling to you? Would we entrust ourselves to you? And as we look at your word this morning, would you bring it to life for us? And would you see where we need to apply it to our own lives? So Holy Spirit, be present with us. Move and convict as you see fit. Bring to mind those things that we need to encounter and confront. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So jumping back, Acts 23, beginning in verse 12. We begin and we read this, that when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. Now we read this and we need to recognize that an oath to kill, not to be confused with the license to kill, but an oath to kill was not unheard of. At this time, it was not something that, that was surprising during the reign of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great made incredible structures, structures you can still go and see to this day. He, he built around the temple complex and incredible stone walls, some stones that are the size of a bus uh, that weigh just thousands of pounds of the engineering and the feats that he's done. Amazing. But as a person, as a human, his character, he was, he was horrific. One of the, the most violent rulers of the day, a sick and twisted man who saw any confrontation to his power as something to be taken out. And so while he was in power, there were actually 10 Pharisees that came together and made a similar oath that we see here, that they were going to neither eat nor drink until they were able to kill the king that was Herod. Now, Herod, again, being the man that he was, discovered this plot and quickly killed those 10 Pharisees as an act of power. But the reason I say this is because we can kind of see this as maybe this is just this one-off oath that these guys had. No, this was something that had been practiced before. And, and so uh, the other thing that may come to mind too is, okay, so if they're not able to kill Paul in this moment, do they just starve to death? I've been asked that question so many times. Like, do they just, now they just have to write it out and, well, you guys said you're going to do it and you didn't do it. So now just, this is a serious diet for you. Uh, no, that they, they would have been able to get out of that through an atonement sacrifice. Uh, and there were some things that they could have gone through. There would have been embarrassment, of course. There would have been frustration on their end because an uh, oath that severe, they would want to see through. But no, there are ways for them uh, to, to get out of that, so to speak. But what we witness in this moment is the severity of just uh, how great a threat they saw Paul to be. That they're willing to sacrifice much on their end just to see his life taken. And so we read that over 40 men take this oath and they begin to hatch a plan. And so verse 14, it says that they, they went to the chief priests and the elders. Now, it's important to note here, the chief priests and the elders, there's no mention of scribes, there's no mention of Pharisees. They're going to the Sadducees. Now, why would these men who are taking an oath to kill Paul go to the Sadducees? Well, they, they knew what had just transpired the day before. The Pharisees had sided with Paul in the midst of an argument because Paul was proclaiming the hope of resurrection. 
And so they knew that the Sadducees, they, they want Paul dead. And so they're going to go to the ones that can help them with this cause. And so they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, that would have been the Sanhedrin, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, their, their plan is very straightforward. They're coming to these Sadducees. They're saying, we want you to convene the Sanhedrin once again. That you're going to get to the bottom of what's really going on with Paul. You're going to ask some more questions. You're going to tell the tribune that you're going to be helpful and you're going to come around him. But really what they're trying to do is they're just getting Paul transferred from the Antonia Fortress where he's being held down to where the council would have met. Which wasn't a large stretch, but it would have come along the temple complex. And their thought was that they had over 40 men ready and willing to give their lives to take Paul's life. And if you've been to Jerusalem, even today, the corridors throughout it are very narrow. It sets up so that even if you have the strongest of force around you, ambush is always possible. And a quick attack by 40 men would have meant that at least one of them probably could have got through the Roman soldiers to get to Paul to take his life. And so that's what they were banking on, that as he was being brought down, that they could overpower or, or sneak through and they could take Paul's life. Now, what's always fascinating to me in this moment is the lack of recorded dialogue between these, these zealots, these ones who are coming to, to kill Paul, and the chief priests and the elders. We hear nothing in the conversation with them. No one says, whoa, whoa, guys, that's a little extreme. We shouldn't take out Paul. We're not going to kill a man. That's crazy talk. No, their silence in this moment is deafening. It's seen as an acceptance of the plot as they just go along with it to wipe out Paul once and for all. And so, verse 16, we read, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. As, as Luke often does throughout his narratives, he just will introduce a character with kind of no setup or anything. Suddenly we're talking around Paul's nephew and we're like, oh, Paul's got a nephew. Had no idea, right? We know that Paul was brought up in Jerusalem. He had said that. So it's not uh, unlikely that his, his whole family had been brought up in Jerusalem. So his sister probably lived there. And now she has a son who's showing up on the scene. And he's referred throughout this encounter as a, as a young man. And so when we ask, how did he so easily uh, get to his uncle? How did he get into the barracks to speak to Paul? We have to remember that Paul was being held under guard uh, by one of the centurions. And, and it was really at the discretion of the guard as to who could come and visit. And at this point, Paul's a Roman citizen. So he's going to have certain rights and there's going to be certain leniency because of his status as a Roman citizen. And, and the fact that this young man, Paul's nephew, is probably not seen as a threat, they allowed for conversation to happen. But regardless of how this is taking place, what we see once again in Paul's life is that the winds of adversity are rising once again. That there is a plot that is coming against his very life. In verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. 
And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you want to tell me? The tribune here again, if you've been following along with us, this is Claudius Lysias. We've been introduced to him. He's the one that swept in when Paul was being beaten by the, the Jewish mob to begin with, although he didn't realize Paul was a Roman citizen and he was ready to beat Paul himself until he discovered that fact. And so now he's trying to go through the paces of figuring out what's going on. But we read here that Paul's nephew is, makes his way into Claudius Lysias. And as they're having this conversation, that Claudius, he takes him by the hand. This is seen as a sign of peace, of good intention, that he's going to listen to the young man. He's going to hear what he has to say. And he says, what do you have to tell me? What's going on here? And Paul's nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. Okay, just, just take the force of that language. Imagine this young man speaking to an authority figure, the, the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, and he is boldly proclaiming, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink uh, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, Paul's nephew in this moment is, is not only rescuing his uncle, right? And I have a few nephews that go to this church. And if you're listening right now, always tell me if there's a plot against my life. That's, I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you. But not only is he coming to the aid of his uncle, but he's putting his own life at danger. He's taking great risk in this moment. This is why Claudius, the tribune, when he, he dismisses him, he says, tell no one what you have told me. Now, one reason is he wants the secrecy, he wants the surprise, he wants to be able to act on the information he's just been given. But also, if we look at the picture that's building around us, if these men are willing to take an oath that they're not gonna eat until Paul is dead, and someone thwarts that plan, what's the likelihood that they're going to come after that person? It's, it's pretty strong. So his life is in danger in this moment. And so as news travels fast throughout Jerusalem, there's little time to waste. And Claudius is going to have to take this information. He's going to act upon it quickly. Now, before we move into what transpires next, I just want to pause for a second and take note of this moment again. Because Paul's nephew is used here in a significant way by God. And what I love is we don't even know his name. He's just referred as, as Paul's nephew. How many people throughout the course of history has God used with no recognition, no fanfare, no plaque, no commemorative day, just ordinary people like you and me that God has used for his glory and for his purpose? Now, we don't know if Paul's nephew was a believer or not. We're not told that. We're not given those facts. There's, there's some things that I like to trail off in my mind of if he's coming to his, his uncle's rescue in this moment and the way that he is, that I'd like to think that he shared the same beliefs as him. But there's something else in this young man's actions that just catch me. And it's simply this. He did something. When he overheard what was happening to his uncle, he didn't sit idle. He didn't think, man, if I go, I'm putting myself in great risk. 
He didn't hope somebody else would make this information known. He acted on the opportunity that was before him. This is the kind of action that I pray marks you and me and marks our community of believers. That we would be a people of action. People who do the right thing because it's the right thing. And what's clear is that although he, he got more recognition than most of us will ever get. I mean, Paul's nephew is mentioned in the Bible. So I don't want to say like nobody knows him. No, we know of, of something of him, even though we don't know his name. But even though we don't know his name, what we can rest assured of is that God knows his name. God saw his actions. Just as God sees each and every one of our actions. Just as God knows what we are doing when no one else is watching. Just as God sees every opportunity that comes our way. Whether we think anyone sees that moment where we shrank back or we stepped in. So when I read through this little moment with Paul's nephew, when given the opportunity, even at cost to himself, he moved forward. And he did what was right. And my prayer for us as a community, that when given the opportunity, even at cost to ourselves, we would do that which is right in the eyes of God. And may it never be said of us that given the opportunity for action, we held back for our own comfort. This is just a brief moment. but I think it's powerful in the example we see. Now back to the plot as it's thickening. Paul's nephew takes the risk, goes to, to Claudius, tells him the story. He's sent away in secrecy. And Claudius now has to, to make a decision. Is he going to trust the word of this young man? And if he is, he's going to have to move very fast because he had a momentary edge on those who were hatching this plan. And they were seeking to do harm to, to who? A prisoner that was under his care. So verse 23, it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he decides, I'm, I'm going with this. I'm going to take care of my prisoner. I'm going to protect him. Now, there's a, a few things we should note. Eventually, because of Paul's case, he was going to have to go to Caesarea anyway. But now the, the threat against his life is speeding up that process. And so Claudius says, I'm going to send 200 horsemen with you. Uh, I mean, sorry, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and then 200 men of the right hand. That's what the Greek language actually is. That's the spearmen, the men who, who hold the spear in their hand. In their hand. This would be a, a huge contingent of soldiers that would be leaving from the Antonia fortress at a time where unrest was already high. He's sending about half of the available troops over to, to take one prisoner all the way to Caesarea. This would leave Antonia fortress uh, susceptible to attacks. And yet still, Claudius sees this as, as worth it to ensure that Roman law prevails, that this prisoner is given fair trial. But why would he send so many? 470 uh, troops around one, one prisoner. 
Well, the, the path from Jerusalem all the way to Caesarea is only about 60 miles. But when you're going from Jerusalem down uh, in the path that they're going to take to, to Antipatris, the, this is a dangerous territory. It's, it's mountain territory. And tensions were already high between the Romans and the Jews. And so late at night, ambush was always likely. There's plenty of caves and rocks and, and places to hide and that you can come out sight unseen and take on even a, a more uh, imposing force. And so Claudius knew this, that to get his prisoner there, he's going to need a, a pretty strong show of force. And so while it may seem odd that here's Paul with this entourage around him making sure he arrives safely in this moment, that Roman justice would be met out was important to Claudius in this moment as Paul was under his care. But I often like to think, what was Paul thinking in the moment where he's getting on the horse and he's surrounded by all of these troops? As he's taking in this sight, were the words of Jesus coming back to him, take courage, you're going to see Rome. Is he just laughing like, Lord, I've done nothing, and here I am being taken by this entire Roman guard. And he wouldn't have seen, man, Rome is really protecting me in this moment. No, he would said, my Savior, my God, is protecting me in this moment as he had promised to. So take courage, take heart, Paul. His protection was provided by his Savior. And even in Paul's suffering, we see God's sovereignty shining through. And so this group of soldiers is sent with Paul. And, and we're told in verse 25 that Claudius, he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge from which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, he sends this letter, and, and if you've been reading along with us through Acts and the, the accounts that we've seen over, you, you notice he glosses a few things in this account. Like, Claudius looks like a hero. Uh, he's, he's trying to show himself, like, no, I stepped in to rescue this Roman citizen. And when he had no idea that Paul was a Roman citizen, he was about ready to whip him to get information out of him until Paul mentioned that he was a Roman citizen. But, but all that doesn't matter. He, this is typical language. When one inferior uh, soldier was speaking to a superior, they're always going to try and present themselves in the best light. And we see Claudius doing this. He's writing to the governor, trying to say, look, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my duty. And now I'm discharging him to you. Now, Governor Felix, who we're going to get to know over the next couple of weeks, he was governor of the Roman province of Judea from 52 AD to 59 AD. And history has not looked very kindly on Felix. Due to his family connections, he was actually able to rise from the station of slave to governor. That was an unprecedented feat at the time. No one else had, had risen so high. And yet history, uh, one historian, Tacitus, wrote of Felix, he practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. As we get to know him, we'll see that even his interactions with Paul, he's hoping to get something from Paul, some sort of bribe. We're not going to see a bastion of character from Felix. 
But this is the man that now Paul is being entrusted to. So verse 31, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with them. Now, Roman soldiers were accustomed to late night marches and their march began at 9 p.m. That's when he sent them out. The third watch, he sent them out at 9 p.m. And they would often train, the Roman soldiers, they would train in marches uh, where they'd be forced to march just to stay in shape and they would go at a pace uh, at four miles an hour, sometimes five miles an hour. And they were expected to keep this pace with everything that they had on and to, to roll through it. And so leaving at 9 p.m., they'd be arriving in Antipatris, which is about 35-ish miles away from uh, Jerusalem early uh, the next day. Now, Antipatris was south of Caesarea. And you can see it on this map here, uh, just the path that they would have taken, beginning in Jerusalem, going through the hills all the way to Antipatris. And then they still have the trek upward to Caesarea uh, Maritima, which is right on the coast there. Now, Antipatris was a town that was named after Herod the Great's father. He had built up this uh, place. Herod had built up this as a military fortress, and he had named it after his father, Antipater, in, in honor of him. It was also formerly known as, as Aphek, a, a hometown of the Philistines. And again, it was a little over the halfway mark, and it got through the most treacherous part. So we read at this point that he returned, uh, he returned the soldiers back. The, the soldiers get to Antipatris. Now they make the charge back to Jerusalem because they need to be there uh, to protect the city. The horsemen go on with Paul all the way to Caesarea uh, making that trip. In verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Felix, uh, his first interaction with Paul is just, okay, where are you from? Uh, I need to know if I have jurisdiction over you is a shrewd move. And he said, oh, I'm from Cilicia. And he's like, oh, that's actually not his jurisdiction. But he knew who was in charge of that. And it was a man of great importance. And Paul is just kind of this, this small town guy. He's like, okay, I'm just going to take care of this. I'm not going to bother anybody else with you. Uh, and we're just going to wait. And what does he say? I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. So the, the clock hasn't started really yet because his accusers are, are probably just discovering in this moment that, oh, we were trying to kill him and now he's in Caesarea. He's already made it there. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, Herod's praetorium was Herod's palace that's located on the coast of Caesarea. You can go and you can kind of see the foundations of it today. And when we think of Paul being placed in some kind of prison, this is not the prison you would imagine. This was a palace that was built right on the coast by Herod the Great. A palace so great that on the inner, inner kind of sanctum there, there was a, an indoor pool that he could swim in while also seeing the view of the ocean surrounding him. And there was nothing that Herod kind of spared in these moments. And so Paul would have been given one of these extra rooms because Herod the Great, long since dead, his kingdom now dwindled down and, and Rome had taken over this palace as, as their place of governance. And so Paul is staying in one of these rooms under guard. He couldn't go and, and come as he pleased, uh, but it wasn't terrible circumstances, but it still wasn't great. No one wants to be locked up, although he might have had a nice view, which might have helped. But as we walk through this, we see that Paul was helpless to do anything 
against the wind that was blowing against him. There is a plot against his life, held as a prisoner, awaiting trial. There's nothing he can do to change these circumstances. The only thing that he can do is to continue to sink his roots deep, his roots deep and once again entrust himself to Jesus. And this for me, in this moment, is the message for us. Entrusting ourselves to Jesus in everything. Our pain, our suffering, our joy, our confusion, our doubts. And a culture that so seeks to distract, to numb the pain of discomfort, of suffering, to seek a way around it. We're called to something different. We're called to entrust ourselves to Jesus even in the midst of adversity. And what I believe we will find is that much like a tree that experiences the resistance of wind, our roots will only go down deeper and we will only be able to take on more, not in our strength, but in his. Trusting that in God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Trusting that God is sovereign even in our suffering even in our adversity, even in our pain. Now I know and I wrestled with this that sometimes that can just sound so empty. It can just sound like a platitude. Just trust God and it's going to be okay. I'm not saying it's going to be okay. It's still going to be hard. The tears are still going to come. We may even continue to ask in the midst of it, what good can possibly come from this? What purpose could my suffering serve in this moment? But when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we take our eyes off the pain and we we place our focus on him. And even in our pain, we can find purpose. And often our pain becomes a place of ministry. Not just ministry to others, a place where Jesus ministers to us so closely that we have to sustain because we're just gripping onto him. But then in the same way as our roots grow down deeper, we find that entrusting ourselves to Jesus, we're better equipped to come alongside others who are walking through the same pain, the same suffering, and to point to the only path that we found hope in, and that was following Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured on our behalf so that we could entrust ourselves to him. And he saw the joy beyond the pain of the cross of what this would accomplish because he has a a fuller view. So often we become myopic when our pain is so acute. So how do we endure in the midst of it? Well, we endure by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. Jesus who has gone before us who has endured before us, who can sympathize with us, who walks with us, who sends his spirit to strengthen and comfort us and who overcame for us. In the wreckage of 9-11, when those towers came down, 
there was a tree that was discovered. And, so, and some of you know the story of the, the survivor tree. It was alive, but it bore the scars and in the ash of all that had collapsed around it with those towers when they came down. But this tree became a symbol of hope. Hope that life could continue on even after pain, even after loss, even after the unimaginable. This tree was actually taken out of the ground and, and taken somewhere else where others could come and care for it and, and, and really nurse it back to life until in 2010 it was brought to the site of the 9-11 memorial where it was replanted and stands still to this day. And every year, there's three seedlings that are taken from that tree that are gifted to communities that have experienced pain and tragedy. And the hope is that this is a sign that even in the pain, life is still possible. That through the wind and chaos and adversity and suffering, roots can grow deep and strength can still be found. And when I heard that story, I was, I was moved by it. We were watching a documentary as they were talking around it and just this, this story of hope and, and they talk around it in terms of, of human resilience and look what we can do. But as I was looking at that tree, I could only think of another that offers a greater hope. See, as Jesus hung on his tree with his arms stretched open wide, we see both the brutality and the beauty of the cross and the joy that he saw and endured for us, despising the shame of the cross that he took on willingly where we might ask questions of why did it have to be this way? I love the questions that uh, pastor and author uh, Tim Keller states he says that so many who look upon the cross and so many who would have been there in, in that moment would have been tempted to say, I've had it with God. How could he abandon the best man we have ever seen? I don't see how God could bring any good out of this. And he continues on, what would you say? You would likely agree. And yet you are standing and looking at the greatest, most brilliant thing God could ever do for the human race. And this is the part I want us to pay attention to. On the cross, both justice and love are being satisfied. Evil, sin, and death are being defeated. And you are looking at absolute beauty. But because you cannot fit it in your own limited understanding, you are in danger of walking away from God. Don't do it. We all experience the cross in some way, shape, or form, and we have a moment of, God, I don't understand what you are doing, and I cannot see you in this moment, and I'm going to walk away. Don't do it. Entrust yourself to Jesus, knowing that the wind will come. Adversity will come, but may our roots grow ever deeper still. For Jesus who has gone before us, Jesus who stands with us, and Jesus who for the joy set before him suffered on our behalf, he has overcome. So that even in the pain, we can see possibility. Even in the brutality, we can see beauty that comes. And we endure by trusting and entrusting ourselves to Jesus, even in the midst of adversity. Trusting that in him, beauty can come from ashes. Trusting that in him, 
the cross and death and our sin has been defeated. And where we see no hope, hope is alive in him. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come before you, we're just reminded of our need for you. How easy it is for us to get uh, lost for our, our pain or our circumstances to overwhelm. Father, in an incredible moment, Paul got to watch this play out. As you said, uh, take courage. Trust me, Paul. And then this whirlwind of events as his very life was in danger and you protected him in ways that I'm sure he could not have even imagined. But Lord, in the moment, we never see the full picture. Would we trust that you do? That even in our suffering, you are sovereign. That you are active, that you are still there even when we cannot see it. Would we not lose that hope? But would you build a resilience in us? a strength that is deeply rooted in the truth of who you are. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The hope that we find in those words, that he's not finished with us yet. I don't want to lose the significance of that. Because some of you come in here and you feel like you're done that there's no hope, there's nothing before you, that there's nothing that can undo the feelings that you have, uh, the things that you have done, but he is not finished with you yet. He has hope and life. And when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we step forward in that path and his strength, building deep our roots in him. If that's you this morning and you just feel like you've got nothing, I just encourage you. I know that walk up front here to get prayer can feel like the longest walk of your life or is everyone watching me? No one's paying attention. So afterwards, if you just need prayer, if you just need to, to talk, we'll be here. If you want to know more about what does that mean to entrust myself to Jesus, we want to talk with you about that. If you're watching online and you have questions, let us know. We want to talk with you. He's not finished with you yet. So don't give up on him because he hasn't given up on you. And as we leave here, then let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great high priest who has gone before. May we step forward in confidence and trusting ourselves to him even in the face of adversity, trusting that even in our suffering, he is sovereign. May you know his grace and may you experience his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week.